Matthew chapter 19, and that'll be verses 16 through 30, and that'll be page 1529 in the Pew Bible. you stand with us as we begin our service and opening prayer? Elder Clayton, may I put the bite on you to lead us in prayer this morning.
First hymn for this morning is taken from the hymnal, page 245.
with a proverbial favorite hymn from one of our parishioners. Does anyone have one? I see one way in the back. Young lady. It is well with my soul. Very good choice. 493 in the brown. Peace. 
scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. In your pew Bible, that's page 1541. When you come to that, please stand with us. Matthew 25, 14 through 30. For it will be like a man going on a journey who has called his servants and entrusted them to his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five more talents. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he had received he who had received five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you have delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he who also had two talents came forward, saying, Master, you had delivered me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seeds. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even he who, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Once again from the Brown Hymnal, number 555. Five fifty five.
Good. Our text is Matthew 25. Went to the doctors this week to um, follow up on him wanting to see me because of having cold. He was checking to see if I had uh, the diseases bugging everybody. And anyway, he wasn't there. He had a... um, uh, surrogate there for him he was away on a trip or something whatever this new guy he's in his 50s or something like that he takes a look at me and he says what's that sore underneath your lip right here on your chin I said oh I've had that how long have you had that I said oh probably a couple months or whatever and you got one up here on your nose I said, yeah. He gets his little glass out and looks, you know how they do. And I'm just about ready to leave. I turn around. He's sitting there with a scalpel in his hand. I'm saying to myself, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, I'm in trouble. (laughs) And before I knew it, he whacked this off. He whacked the one off of my chin. And he put them in little containers and then in zip bag. And he says, I'm sending them off to the lab because they look suspicious. I say, you mean cancer? He says, yeah. And uh, I have had skin cancer before on the nose. So anyway, there's a prayer request for you. And he shocked me to death. Sitting there with his scalp on his hand. I thought, I'm in real trouble. <laughs> this new guy's going to cut me apart. So anyway, thank you, and I would appreciate your prayers on that. Three weeks. He's, it's going to take three weeks for them to get back on the verdict. Well, anyway, our text is Matthew 25. We're going to look at the subject of the stewards. Last Lord's Day, we studied the parable of the ten virgins. Jesus' opening statement at that time was a reference to those things that he had been discussing in chapter 24 concerning what the world would be like at the time of his second coming. So when Jesus said these parables that we have studied, there's been, there's not been a strong eschatological flavor to them. They just seem to be dealing with everyday life. And, of course, the people could relate to that. But the parable of the virgins does deal with future things. Ten virgins, or bridesmaids, awaited the arrival of the groom. They fully intended to form a processional party to escort him to his bride. But problems arose. Number one, five of the virgins took lamps and oil. The remaining five, which are called foolish, took lamps, but no oil. What were they thinking? These are oil-fired lamps. No oil, no flame, no fire, no light, no nothing, no heat. 
Secondly, the bridegroom was a long time coming. There's the second problem. A long time coming. Well, yeah, but instead of running to the marketplace to buy oil, the foolish virgins carelessly wasted away the time of grace. Ah, we got lots of time, you know. They were caught by surprise. And finally, because of the delay of the groom, both the wise and foolish virgins became drowsy and fell asleep. Suddenly then, at midnight, the hour came with no advance notice. The cry came out, the bridegroom is here, the bridegroom is here. The wise arose, they trimmed their lamps, they were able to go out to meet the bridegroom, but the foolish virgins had to run off to buy fuel for their lamps. When they returned, they found the door shut of the hall, and they were not given admittance. The scripture says the groom would not acknowledge them. Wow. We drew out three lessons. Number one, foolish virgins, those who are moral in character, yes, they're virgins, right? So they're moral in their character. They love to be in the presence of God's people. They're friends of the church and of Christ, willing to serve, but they never act on the Holy Spirit's conviction of sin. They plan to borrow grace from the true Christian. And it's impossible. You can't borrow it. You have to go to Christ directly to receive it. Secondly, we learn that there's no second chance of salvation after Christ returns. The door is shut and no one's going to open it. You know, I run into a lot of people. They, they, they get hung up on number two here. They think there is a second chance. They think they can live like the devil now, all the years, partying, pornography, whatever. And then in the 11th hour, when Christ comes, they can say, oh, I'm sorry, please forgive me, and all will be well. No, it won't be, because repentance is a gift of God, and they won't repent. In fact, they will gnash their teeth at him. Thirdly, we learn that the true people of God can fall asleep spiritually, and be ill prepared for the coming of Christ as well. Let it not be said of us. Let us be alert and ready. Well, today's parable on the stewards is another dealing with how it will be in the last days before Christ comes. No one dare say of Christ, You didn't tell us, we had no clue. What do you expect of us? No, he is alerting us in these parables. And he's moving towards, if you, you're reading Matthew's gospel, he's moving towards his arrest, betrayal, false trial, crucifixion. He's moving towards that.
a businessman distributed his wealth. That's what this parable is about. He had considerable wealth, called all of his servants before leaving for a long journey. And he distributed his property according to their skills or abilities. Can't open my paper here. The landowner had considerable wealth. And when I say considerable wealth, it's involved with the sums of money. Some of them are referred to. Elon Musk, TV News, just bought Twitter. Who can buy Twitter? Didn't know Twitter was for sale. Paid $44 billion for Twitter. Now he seems to have a good motive. He said he was tired of the fact that Twitter kept canceling conservative people to speak on Twitter. And he wants the conservatives to have a voice as well as all the liberals. So that's pretty good. A talent in this account was a weight measurement used for coinage. And one talent of money would be about 6,000 denarii. It would take the average worker 20 years just to earn one talent. Can you imagine that? 20 years. Or 100 years to earn more than one. So this without stretch of the imagination is big money. It's big money. That Jesus is talking about here. Hundreds of millions of dollars in our currency. But the amount of money distributed by the wealthy businessman is not so important as the fact that whether five or two or even one talent, each servant was allotted only that amount of money which he had the expertise to manage. It says so, verse 15, according to his ability. So after the businessman distributed his wealth, he took off. And he left the servants to manage his money as best they could. The first servant doubled his money from five to ten talents. The servant with two talents did the same. He doubled his money. And they were able to double their master's money because, verse 16, they went at once and put his money to work. Interesting statement. So, no hesitation, no dilly-dallying around, no taking three weeks to investigate and muse and ponder, what shall I do? No, they immediately put the money into real estate or mutual funds with a higher interest rate, and they watched it grow and grow 
and grow. On occasion, they might have switched enterprises to work the percentages so as to reap the most profit. I don't know. Servant number three did not do any of this. Instead, he dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money in the hole. And there it remained in the ground until the businessman returned. Verse 19 says, After a long time, the businessman did return. And upon doing so, he called his servants together to settle accounts with them. Servants 1 and 2 could hardly wait to present their work. Each of them had doubled the amount of money over which they had been stewards for all the long months that their master had been away. There was joy in their hearts, hope in their reply. Master, see! That's what they say. Master, see! You can hear, just hear their excitement. We've been working hard. So why shouldn't they be happy? They had done an excellent job. In the words of the text, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Verse 21, repeated in verse 23. So their work had put a smile on their master's face, a song in his heart. By their fidelity and good stewardship, his wealth in their hands had literally doubled. But, Servant number three was a totally different story. He had not put the master's money to work. Instead, he put it in a hole in the ground. He didn't nurture it. He didn't watch over it, making sure that the money grew through interest and good financial management. He buried his responsibility, which was sin enough. But to that sin of indolence, he added insolence, by accusing the master of being a hard man, verse 24, that is, a harsh and vindictive and cruel man. Hmm. Look as, as, as I may in this story, I cannot find harshness in this businessman at all. We are specifically told by Jesus that the businessman had distributed his wealth to each servant according to his ability. Verse 15. That means that servant number three was not overtaxed with his allotted responsibility. He was given what he could handle. That's the way we would say it. But he did not handle what he was given. And to excuse himself... For being idle, he tried to make the master at fault. He did more. He out and out falsified the master's reputation by portraying him as one who harvests where you have not sown and gathered where you have not scattered seed. Verse 24. What a bold-faced lie this servant issued. Had not the master given him a full talent weight 
of gold to work with? Wasn't that <laughs> the seed money from which the master had hoped to reap a profit? You know, it's the easiest form of work to put money that doesn't belong to you and for which you have not done any work one day in your life. It's the easiest thing to put that money into the bank and let it just sit there and draw interest and watch it grow and watch it grow and watch it grow. But this servant would not even do that. Finally, this servant gave the lame excuse that was because he was terrified at the harsh master he had to work for that he hid the money in the ground, verse 25. But, he says, you still have what belongs to you. I, I mean, I didn't lose a penny. I should be commended for, for keeping the status quo. What a sly one this third servant is. He doesn't do a whit of work the whole time the master is away. He's been negligent in his stewardship. He has wasted his abilities on making excuses. And then he has the audacity to suggest that the master himself must share some of the blame for his poor performance. Well, it didn't work. The businessman saw right through him. Notice how the master used the servant's own words to indict him and condemn him. Verse 26. You wicked, lazy servant. So, you knew that I harvest where I have not sown. Did you know that? Yeah, that's what you said. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the banker so that when I return, I would have received it back with interest. In other words... You didn't even act on what you knew. For this servant to claim to have known the master's character so well, assuming that he was a harsh man, and then not to do the very least he could have done was an admission of guilt. Well, you notice, too, that this businessman did not require a doubling of his money. He didn't. He would have been happy if his servant had simply put his money in the bank so that when he returned, he would have received the one talent and interest on that, whatever that would have been. Verse 28. And Jesus couches the point of the parable within the ending of the story instead of making the point directly to his disciples. If you're in Matthew 25, look at verses 28 and following. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 
ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what he has will take, be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what is the meaning of all of this? Well, it's Jesus saying that the poor are going to lose even what they have and the rich are going to get richer. Not at all. Jesus is saying, the diligent disciple of God who uses his God-given gifts to advance the cause of God and truth in the world around him, in so doing, enriches himself because of God's unfailing reward. But the person whose poverty is self-inflicted because of his indolence and wicked refusal to employ the gifts of God that God has given him, he's going to lose even the little that he once had. God gives us gifts to bring glory to himself, to expand, to show that we are energetic in terms of service. Not just possession, but service. Yeah, I got this talent of, this, let's put it this, this brick of gold. I got this brick of gold that's worth a lot of money. And I can do something with it, if I will. Or I can bury it in a hole in the ground and just keep it there till the master calls for it. Now, what's the meaning of the story of these stewards? Well, it is this. Our great God, who is sole owner of the universe and whose earth we populate as tenants, has given men the watch care of this world. Not just the terra firma beneath our feet, though that too is a stewardship from him, but as the people of God, his kingdom is entrusted to us. And a lavish kingdom it is. To manage such a kingdom is a holy calling, and it requires the empowerment of God himself. To accomplish this, God the Spirit distributes his spiritual gifts to the people in such a way that no one person is overburdened. Listen to how Paul describes it in Ephesians 4. He says there's one body and one spirit, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all. This is the business manager in our text. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, he's referring to the scriptures, when he ascended on high, he went away on a long journey, the ascension of Christ. When he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastor-teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith 
and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Paul makes it very clear that when Christ ascended to glory, he gave gifts to his church in order to prepare God's people for works of service. Now you might say, well, I, I, I see apostles there. I see evangelists, uh, prophets, uh, preachers in this text. But I don't see a gift that applies to me. Well, it's not the only text in the Bible that talks about the spiritual gifts. Go to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4 and following. Here again, Paul says, there are different kinds of gifts, but it's the same spirit. There are different kinds of service, but it's the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Five talents, two talents, one talent. That's not the important thing. All of this money came from the same master and was entrusted into the hands of his servants to manage it. Likewise, all of the spiritual gifts of Christ to his church come from one triune God who entrusts his kingdom into our hands to manage it. Paul puts it this way. To each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And then he talks about some get the message of wisdom, some have the message of knowledge, some have faith, some have gifts of healing, some have miraculous powers, and on and on and on he goes. All these, then he summarizes, all these are the work of the one and same spirit and he gives them to each one just as he determines the body is a unit that is made up of many parts first corinthians 12 verse 7 and following the wicked steward in jesus story never saw his part in the picture he never saw his role amidst the whole of the master's kingdom. He acted unilaterally, and the decision he made was to bury his talent and satisfy himself that he didn't lose any of the money and could, in the end, report that the master had not been cheated by him. But this was not true. The money he received, may I say, the talent, the gifted money that God gives you, has a purpose from God, and he expects to receive back with interest, verse 27. It's not to be buried in a hole in the ground. It's not to be set on the back shelf. You're not to be content to just keep it intact. It's to be put to work. It's to grow. It's to be used. Not allowed to become idle. Not allowed to be stagnant. 
And anything less is cheating God. Why? Because other lives are locked into your gifts and your abilities. Again, Paul writes this. Now the body is not made up of one part, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. It would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body, but that it parts, its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, then every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. 1 Corinthians 12, 14 and following. You get the idea here that our Christianity is not just singular for us to concentrate on. There is the bigger picture. There's some indication in our text that the first two servants work together on the strategy that enabled them to double their money. Verse 16, verse 17 say the same identical things about these two servants, namely, of the first who had been given five talents, he went at once and put the money to work and gained five more. So also the one with two talents gained two more. Follow me now. There is one statement concerning putting the money to work and two statements about the results. These first two servants understood something of a cooperative effort to achieve a common goal. The first did not go one way and the second another way. Whatever they did, they did together. There's no rivalry here. There's no competition. There's no attempts at one-upmanship. If one is to be honored, the other is going to rejoice that it actually happened. When the wicked steward was judged, his talent of money was taken away and given to the man who had ten. That talent was not divided by the master between the man who had doubled his five and the man who had doubled his two. No, the master gave the total sum to his first steward alone. And guess what? This was okay with the second steward. We don't even hear a peep of protest from him. We're all stewards. The gifts and calling of God are not ours to do with as we please. They are God's to do as he pleases. There is to be no competition, but cooperation in our services and rejoicing when one is honored. Now consider this wicked servant's action. Verse 18. But the man who had received the one talent went off. See what he does? 
So he didn't stay with the group. He didn't work as a team. He went off. He isolated himself. He did his own thing. And his own thing was to bury and not use what God had given him. It was given for the common good of others with whom he had a membership in the kingdom. Indeed, may I say that our gifts only have value within the body of Christ. And only so long as they are being used there. This was Jesus' point to the wicked steward. That the very least he could have done was to put the money in the bank. There again is the pull of funds from other investors. Where some interests, some growth would be possible. Verse 27. Now here's the sobering news. God gives to each of his people at least one gift of the Spirit, probably more. This gift, whatever it is, is not yours, but it's the Master's. You're only the steward. The gift given has a corporate role to play within the body of Christ, which means that God did not bless you with that grace for your own aggrandizement the gift therefore is not for you to do with as you please if you bury your talent if you go off on your own and deprive the kingdom of God of the grace God expects you to employ on behalf of others God counts you both wicked and lazy and you will lose whatever part you thought you had in his kingdom. You will, verse 30, be thrown outside and counted as worthless. You may think that every organization has some deadbeats in its ranks, and that's true. But there are no deadbeats in God's kingdom. The living and active workers for God who are working to see his kingdom extended and grow are given more responsibilities. The deadbeats are cast out because to be a deadbeat means, hello, you're dead. God, however, Paul says, is the God of the living. He's the God of the living. This parable is sobering because it shows the link between love for God and service for God. The wicked steward buried his blessings, hoarded them for another day, refused to put his abilities to work for God. Did he love God then? How could we say so when we see him describing God as a hard man? Yeah, that's God. He's a hard man. He's one who gathers where he has not scattered seed. 
I wouldn't want to put that accusation on God, would you? No wonder his relationship to God is one of fear, verse 25. This is not reverential fear either, the all that we are to have for God. It's the slavish fear of sin, of knowing that he had not done well while all the while trying to lay the blame on God. This happens so much in humanity. It's pitiful. There are many people whose idea of love for God exempts them from serving him, but they better wise up and be afraid. For years they have sat by and watched the few wise stewards working their fingers to the bone, doing anything and everything, singing in the choir, serving in committees, cleaning the building, teaching, praying, witnessing, giving money, ministering to the weak and poor. They're a veritable whirlwind of activity while they do relatively nothing. Poor stewardship of God's blessings, laziness in the spiritual realm of the kingdom has dire consequences. You have 24 hours in a day, the same as all of us. It's how you prioritize those hours, which is the measure of your stewardship. Now, I'm not talking about those times when emergencies arise, which is the providence of God, and it keeps you away from the body of Christ. But when your whole life is an emergency... There's something wrong in your life, and you cannot blame the providence of God. As we see in our story, God didn't buy the argument of the wicked steward. He won't swallow your excuses either, nor mine. You've heard it preached for years that God's people are saved to serve. That's a phrase we use, saved to serve. Well, here's a parable from the lips of Jesus himself that explains the consequences of those who do not serve well or do not serve at all. Throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What? He calls him a worthless servant. It's hard to even see how God pairs those two things together. If they're servant, and you're thinking, well, yeah, they're serving. They're doing something for God. But then Jesus says they're worthless. They're worthless do-nothings for God. Whoa. I tell you what, brethren, I get awfully weary at times serving in the kingdom of God, and I 
know that many of you could say the same thing. I live on six hours of sleep and have practically every moment scheduled with something to do. My house chores, my yard work, my automotive repairs, they fall behind. But if Christ were to come today to settle accounts, I'd rather be at my computer writing a sermon or counseling somebody that's needy or praying for the loss than laying under my car changing the oil. Choices, choices. We all have them. Time. Yeah, time. We all have the same allotment. Gifts. We all have at least one gift from the appointment of God's Spirit, probably more. These are our trusts given. We're all appointed stewards of the manifold grace of God. Paul put it this way, men ought always to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the sacred things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what's hidden in darkness. He will expose the motives of men's hearts. Ooh. And at that time each will receive his praise from God. That is each who has been proven faithful to his trust. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and following. So let me ask, will the motives of your heart ring up pure and true when the Lord comes? Will he find you faithful to the trust he has given you to manage? Will you hear this approving commendation? Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. It may seem like God has laid a lot of responsibility for you to live as a Christian in the Christian experience. But the way he says it is this. It's just a few things. It's just a few things that he requires of you and me. The stinginess of our hearts, however, is that we want all the time for ourselves. And we will not give God even the little that he asks. The wicked servant lived on easy street the whole time his master was away. Because his talent was buried in the ground in secret, he didn't even have to watch over it. His time became his own to play away in idle pursuits. He played away his opportunities for service to the king of kings. He played away the true time that he had to make a mark on the kingdom of God, which would benefit others for eternity. 
He played away his day of grace, his day of mercy. And in the end, he played away his own life. Are you playing the same game? You hope to be the winner who takes all, but poor stewardship will make you the loser who forfeits his own life. That's where this story goes. Service for Christ with the time, the talent, the money, the skills that you have is not a game and it's not a waste of your energy. Now, why do you suppose that Jesus would tell a story about the kingdom in its last stages, which deals with good stewardship? We don't have to guess. Because in Matthew 24, he tells us, verse 9 and following, Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations, because of me and at that time many will turn away from the faith and they will betray and hate each other and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people and because of the increase of wickedness the love of most will grow cold but he who stands firm to the end will be saved and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. Well, there's a lot of need for good stewardship in these verses. Grace to bear up under persecution requires fidelity to the gospel entrusted to us. Sticking to the Bible through thick and thin when everyone else is abandoning the faith requires fidelity to the sacred writings entrusted to us. Being loyal to the body of Christ, supporting one another when others are betraying their friends to the enemy requires the stewardship of our Christian fellowship. A discerning spirit to be able to spot and respect reject rather false prophets who preach heresy in the name of God requires faithful stewardship five guarding your own heart and motives so that your love for God and his people don't grow cold requires watchful stewardship and number six making sure that we are proclaiming the good news of the gospel of the kingdom until the whole world has heard requires the stewardship of witness and missions. No wonder Jesus closed out his parables with this one on stewardship. It's the key parable of them all for God's people. Lord, teach us that we're, we're here to serve. I know, we've heard that a dozen, a hundred times. Saved to serve. It's been a message of the gospel for centuries. 
But that said, we also find ways to excuse our service, to go other, other ways, to put other things in, as upper priorities. We take the talents that God has given us, the, the abilities, the resources, and we bury them like this wicked servant. And we pride ourselves that, well, we didn't lose them, we just put them in the ground for safekeeping. Yeah, but safekeeping hasn't done anything because a talent in dirt accomplishes nothing. So, Lord, I pray that you'll help us to see whatever our talent, whatever our gifts from God, we need to employ them and put them into active use day in, day out to the praise and glory of God's grace. May the Holy Spirit not only give us the various gifts that is promised in the scripture, but may he give us the energy and the wherewithal to employ those gifts and to use them for the advancement of God's kingdom. We pray this for your glory and our good. Amen. Our closing hymn is 234 in the hymnal. Please stand with us. Thank you. 
our Lord, we've just sung a hymn expressing how thoroughly you served us in coming. Even the forfeiture of your own life and of your glory above to come and dwell among sinners. And yet we balk at times at the little bit of service that you ask of us. Please forgive us for that. Give us a new understanding of why we were saved. We are vessels to be used for the advancement of your kingdom, for the salvation of other people that we don't, maybe, we, maybe we don't even know them yet, but we're going to run into them. And we have family members, we have children, we have grandchildren. They all need to hear the gospel. And we heard it first, and you saved us, and now we have an obligation as stewards of that same gospel to give it forth that others may hear and believe. Bless and honor the word of God today. Save whom you will for the glory of Jesus and our good, we ask. Amen. See you tonight.